We're going to be in James chapter 1. We're going to take a little bit of a detour from, uh, from what we've been studying. All right, James chapter 1. So a little intro into James. Uh, it's the oldest of the 27 books of the New Testament. And uh, the very first one written, and the majority of scholars believe that this was actually penned by James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now you may ask, why is that so important? Well, did you know Jesus also had four brothers? He had uh, James, being the oldest, other than Jesus, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. And then it also references in Mark 6 and Mark 13 that he had at least two sisters. So by my count, he's got four brothers, Jesus, two sisters, and then Mary and Joseph. That's at least nine people in this house. So James comes from a pretty large family by our standards today. And they live in a carpenter's house in Nazareth. And so think about that for a second. He's not coming from a mansion. There's not a seven, eight-bedroom house that Joseph has in Nazareth. It's a very small home. So they're all having to pile together. So you can imagine the close proximity that they had with Jesus throughout his entire life. Now, one good fact that a lot of people don't realize is James wasn't saved until Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection. James doubted. A lot of uh, Jesus' family actually doubted. And it's encouragement, and again, why it's so important to know that this is James's, it's the half-brother of Jesus that penned this, is because it's an encouragement to each of us. Think about, you may come from a family where you're the only believer. You may be the only one in your family that believes in God, or Jesus Christ, and what he did for us. James didn't believe, even though he had right there first-hand experience. Imagine growing up with Jesus kind of example he could have been to his siblings didn't do the whole uh, he said she said he pulled my hair he kicked me in the shin he was good gave a great example to James and his his family but again I just want you to know it's important because since he wasn't saved till after the resurrection don't give up faith don't lose hope the impact that you can have for your family you may never see what you've done it may be something that's revealed to you after you're standing before Jesus, and he goes, look at what impact you got to have. Look at the lives you were able to touch just by living your faith. Now, another, a little bit more about James is I love how direct James is when it comes to scriptures. He is the very definition of your type A personality, do this, don't do this. He lists them out. He likes you to know exactly what he's going to go and tell you. And do you realize that there are actually 50 commands in the book of James from those first five chapters, 50 commands. That works out to just about one every two verses. So you can imagine he's pretty in line. He likes everything to be nice and neat and likes you to know where we're going. So going from James chapter 1, starting in verse 1, James chapter 1, it's greeting to the 12 tribes. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. That is all of his introduction. This is how to the point James in. He makes it very little about himself and what he's doing. He's going right into, this is what we need to know. This is what God has for us. So starting in verse 2, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith 
produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, complete, not lacking anything. Let's break this down a little bit. He starts off by saying, my brethren. Well, actually, he starts off by saying, I'm just a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You ever name drop? Oh, I know this person. James doesn't do that. He, could, he doesn't drive around with a bumper sticker on the back of his car saying, Jesus is bro. <laughs> he doesn't have a t-shirt that says, what would James do? He didn't write a book saying the 30 years I spent with Jesus. No, he doesn't do any of that. He wants you to be focused on the one that matters, on God, and on what his son did. So why should we consider it joy when we face trials? It says, my brethren, count it all joy when... Pay attention to that word, when. It's letting you know they're coming. You may not be in a trial right now. You could be on that mountaintop. But James is wanting you to know we all go through them. When trials happen, they're coming. But those of you that are in the trials, he wants you to know that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete not lacking anything. Now, don't think that this is wisdom simply from studying a book or intellectual wisdom that James is going to be talking about. He says, so why should we consider it pure joy when we face trials? Well, Hebrews 5.8 says, though he was a son, meaning Jesus, the capital he, yet he learned obedience by things which he suffered. Let me read that again. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by things which he suffered. Jesus wasn't exempt to trials. In fact, quite the opposite. He probably went through a lot more just because he didn't falter. The devil tried extra hard to get him to turn stones to bread and to leap off mountainsides. I mean, you name it. He tried to come at him with everything. And James simply says, without trials, I'll never mature as a Christian. Says that in Hebrews Hebrews five eight is talking about that. Without trials, I'll never mature as a Christian. It also mentions it again in uh, John eight thirty one. Says then Jesus said to the Jews who believe him, who believed him, excuse me, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples. Further on, Matthew twenty four thirteen says, but he who endures till the end shall be saved. They're talking about trials. There are things that are going to come. There are opportunities that you're going to have to prove your faith and to show your works to where it's not just the talk. There was a, um, some of you are old enough. I may date myself here. There was an old, an old band named DC Talk. Anybody remember them? Toby Mack was one of the members of DC Talk. And they had an uh, album called Jesus Freaks. Love that album. It was great. But right at the very beginning, and this is why I always say that as Christians, we could win any Oscar, any Emmy, any award for acting. We're very good at it. But they made a comment at the very beginning of that album that said the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today are Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out that door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. 
as they're looking for something genuine. And so what James is all about is being genuine. Knowing that whatever you say out of here gets walked out. It's not just talk. It takes action. It takes obedience. It takes dying to ourselves. Like it says, perseverance through trials proved my faith, my faith to be genuine. And then going into verses 5 through 8, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not, the man, let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, like I said, this is not wisdom from, you're not going to get this from studying. You're not going to get this from a book. This is wisdom through living your life through trials. It's the only wisdom that you can get through going through these trials that are going to show you you're weak. The weakness that we have in our lives. As men, uh, guys, you can second me on this. We're raised to be strong for our families, and we're raised to put the weight of the world on our shoulders. The guys, God is pretty clear that it's quite the opposite. The weight's on his shoulders. He's to bear that, and we're to follow him. But we like to do it ourselves, and we rely on our own strength a lot of the times. I'm very guilty of it. I do it all the time, and he catches me and all kinds of situations. Like, you're not trusting in me. I didn't tell you to do that. Nope, you're going off on your own. Guys, he wants us to be focused on him, to come to his feet. Let him carry that burden. Let him carry that load. Many of you may be in trials right now. It may seem dark. It may seem stormy. When you get off your knees and you're done praying, it may still be raining. Some of the most frustrating times in a Christian's life is when he says, just wait. I've got this. But we don't know why we're suffering. It's easier to suffer when we know why or what it's for or the purpose. We can endure it then. It makes more sense to us. We're able to say, okay, well, I know this is going to happen. Guys, James is telling you, it's all for a purpose. It's all for a reason. Even when you don't know what it is, God's got it. So trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on to your own understanding. And in all your ways acknowledge him. He will make your path straight. Proverbs 3, five. So what better way to trust God fully than when you're in a trial, when you have nowhere else to turn? We tend to get silent sometimes when things are going good, don't we? Not quite talking to God as much. But it's then all of a sudden... We get a little bump in the road, and we come right back to them. Why is that? Why do we like to jump back and forth, kind of ride that fence, if you will? Instead of having multiple lives, I, 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 I teach youth, so I use this example. We're one way with our friends, and this applies to everybody. We all do this. We could be one way with our friends here at church in our conversation, we could be another way when we're at home with our family, the way we talk, the way we act. Another way when we're at our jobs. Another time when we're just hanging out at night with friends. It changes. It wasn't until I asked God to open my eyes to myself doing this. 
that I realized I was living separate lives. And it was taking up all my time trying to make sure, like, okay, well, I'm supposed to act this way now and then this way another time. And God just kept bringing my focus back. No, I want you to live one full and complete life for me. And God's just looking for people that, that want to sell out to him and that don't buy into the world and don't buy into the garbage that it, it fills in telling you that you can do it yourself or that it's not cool or you're just going to be shackled by a whole bunch of rules. Guys, this book is freedom. It's not rules and regulations. I mean, it is. But in those rules is freedom. In God's will for your life, there's freedom. The only true freedom that we're ever going to have. But there's requirements to receive this kind of wisdom. We mentioned briefly before, there's actual action. There's stuff you have to do. The asking must come from faith and even more a commitment to God. If we look back on verse 6... It says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. There's nothing governing the water other than the wind. Don't be that man who just kind of goes around and goes with the flow. I always hated that phrase. I'm just going with the flow. Guys, we're not supposed to go with the flow. We're supposed to stand out. We're supposed to be different. Paul talks about we're strangers in this world. We're just passing through. This is temporary. The things that we get, the, the riches we are able to make, the, the toys that we collect as we're here, guys, we're not going to get to take them with us. They're temporary. All the temporary things are going to pass away. So doubting, the doubting he talks about, he says, with no doubting, The doubting he's speaking about is that internal struggle between the two desires, between following God and following the world. What are you going to choose? As long as a person isn't fully committed to the Lord, they will not receive the wisdom that the Lord wants to give. Take Solomon in 1 Kings 11. Solomon's one request of the Lord was wisdom. He wanted wisdom above all else. He could have had riches, could have had anything else he asked for, but he asked for wisdom. This supposedly the, the most knowledgeable man in the world ever still was pulled aside by earthly pleasures and the desires. Now he knew better, just like we all do. We know when we're not following. We know when we're going astray. Does it matter to you? God has that constant pull. A lot of you feel it. Come back. I've heard sometimes people say to me that, well, I've just, I've gone too far away or God's too far away from me. No, God's right where you left him. Right where you got distracted and decided to take a detour, he's right there waiting on you to come back. But that's the key. You have to come back. There's action on your part to get that wisdom, to get that knowledge to go through those trials so that we will be mature and complete and not lacking anything. Now, going further, 9 through 11, it says here, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as the flower of the fields he will pass away, 
For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flowers falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. Guys, don't go after the things of the world. That's what James is warning you here. All those riches, all those things that you're pushing so hard for, you're spending all your time, you're devoting your time. Are they the things of this world or are they the things of God? Now, yes, we have to put food on the table. We have to make money. Men, we have to provide. That's, that's your biblical responsibility as a man for your family. But he's still saying, be careful. You can get consumed by it. And if you get consumed by it, what does it do? It takes your focus off of God. When your focus comes off of God, then you start delving into the worldly things. The world starts to govern your household and your family, not God. Don't lose perspective. Now it says the perspective, or perspective of the rich and poor. Again, it says the lowly brother glories in his exaltation, but the rich is in his humiliation. Have the right perspective. Take the world standard on being successful. What is it? When you think of being successful, when you close your eyes, what comes to mind? Cars, money, status, a particular job title. Those are all worldly standards on what is the right perspective. And God wants you, and according, well, let's, let's actually take a look at it a little further. According to the entire New Testament, not to mention countless evidences in history, suggests that riches and what goes along with them is a potential danger to your spiritual life. As most of us can't handle riches. It's too easy to get enticed and go the other way when all your needs are taken care of. I used to think, like, God, I've, there's been several times in my life where I've, I've had money. I was able to spend money on things that I wanted to do with, and God showed me, you're not responsible enough for it. Takes that money. Makes you work for it a little harder. As when you lose perspective, those things happen. We fall away, and the blessings that God wants to put on your life, because we start to doubt in his will for our lives, and we start to rely on our own. Now, if you don't believe me, Scripture says in several places, well, I'll just go through a few of them real quick. Luke 2.15 says a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Luke 6.15, what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Revelations 3.17, you say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And Matthew thirteen twenty two, The one who receives the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it and make it unfruitful. As there's tons of other scriptures that I could have listed and put down of examples of riches and your desires derailing you. Again, James just wants to warn against it. There's only one person to follow. There's only one word, and that's God's. So living under trials, verses 12 through 18. 
It says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. But let no one say, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has, been, has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death and comes down. Oh, excuse me. Brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shadow or turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So remember the wisdom we talked about earlier? Wisdom through trials, through things that you have to go through. And relying on God, that's the wisdom we're talking about. Having that right perspective regarding temptation allows God to use that temptation for our external good. Instead of sometimes we like to make excuses, we like to say, no, well, why me? Uh, I used to be a why me guy. I still do it every now and then, and then God reminds me, yeah. It's... It's a heart condition is what it comes down to. Where's your heart at? Who's it following? Who's, who are you seeking? Because instead of saying, why me? Why do I have to go through? Why is this happening? It's, why not me? Why shouldn't I be going through this? Jesus gave up everything. God gave up his son to come down here and go through unspeakable tortures and torments for you, for me. For all of us. But we have to love God through those trials. So you're either going to respond with disobedience, falling into temptation, sinning, which eventually leads to death, or you'll respond with obedience, using temptation and trials to grow spiritually, which equals maturity. You're going to take one of the two routes. There's only two ways to go. It may take longer to get to the right route, but God's going to keep nudging you. He'll keep taking little, little bits and pieces, kind of chiseling away at the mountain, trying to get through. In Proverbs 19.3, it says, A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. Guys, we're our own worst enemy. Chances are, if, if you feel like your prayers are hitting the floor, there's something in your life that's blocking your communication some unconfessed sin, some trial you're going through you haven't given up to God. Don't be your own worst enemy. We got to die to ourselves daily. Paul talks about it all the time. Die to yourself daily. Surrender to his will, not your own. Now, there are qualities that are needed in trials, and that's in 19 and 20. It says, so then... My beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So, it's saying here 
Let's see, where, where, where are we? Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. So he gives you three instructions there on how to deal and how to have those qualities. Those are the three qualities you have to have while you're going through a trial. Well, you gotta be you gotta be really quick to hear, because what what's going on or whatever is being explained to you at the time, you may not catch it right away. You may misinterpret it. You may take it as coming from the wrong source. So be swift to hear and listen, and be ooh, be slow to speak. How many times you get in trouble because you speak too soon? I do it all the time. Ask my wife. <laughs> it's a lot of time and Pastor Mike will tell me the same thing just be quiet just listen because a lot of times we like to because we like to fix everything right we like to fix the problem like oh there's something wrong I got to fix that we like to be the fixers guys we're not we can't fix anything trust me if I, if I tried to fix this church it would fall apart doesn't work I don't have the skills to do so so I rely on my father-in-law, Mike. He has the skills to know how to do it. Now I can listen and I can follow instructions. This is what God's wanting us to do right now. He wants you to listen. Don't talk. Listen. And then it says, be slow to wrath. How many times does trials make you angry? The answer is all the time. Something's wrong. Something's going on. It's not a good thing. But then if we look back at the very first verse, or excuse second verse, he says, consider it joy. So it is supposed to be a good thing, which is such a foreign concept for us. Trials are good. Being pruned and trained, are, it's hard. It's painful. But remember those three qualities. You've got to be swift to hear. Listen to what God's got to say and what's really going on. Slow to speak. Don't be too quick to give your own input or to just jump in. And then slow to wrath. Don't get angry. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If you're ever responding in anger and in wrath, you know for a fact it's not from God. It says so right here. So why are we talking? Listen. We're supposed to be doers and not hearers only. Verses 21 through 27. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive the meekness of the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of this work, of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If any among you thinks he is religious, but does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. That one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. There's a lot there. We could spend three weeks just on that section. 
So let's break it down just a little bit. He says, therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. He's telling you to get all those things in your life that you've been collecting or you've been holding on to, the grudges, the trials, the temptations, all that garbage. You ever heard the expression garbage in, garbage out? Whatever you put into your life, whatever you keep feeding yourself, whether it's the Word of God or whether it's your Friday night TV show, whatever it may be, whatever you feed yourself, whatever you feed your heart is what's going to come out of your mouth. So it's a warning here. Lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness. So for what? So that you will receive the meekness of the implanted word. Implanted. means literally stuck inside you. It's implanted so like a seed that's going to grow and bust forth and bring fruit. And then it goes further. So don't just put your don't just put it all in, but I need you to be doers. But be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourself. As what he's warning you about here is okay. Well, you've been told now, you've heard it, but what are you going to do? Are you going to be like that Christian who comes to church to get their spiritual high for the week? Goes out that door, nothing changes. Are we going to let that word be a living word in our lives and use whatever he's telling us here out there, day in, day out, and then coming back, getting filled again, and living it again? That's what he wants. But it takes action. You can't just be a man, like it says further on, observing his natural face in the mirror. So you look in the mirror every morning. You think you'd know what you look like. Occasionally you get a pimple surprise or something pops up. You don't want to be that man that walks away, forgets what he looks like. There's nothing governing that man. There's no God in him. He doesn't even remember his face after looking at it. Guys, know who you are. And more importantly, knows whose you are. Whether you're God's children. Whether you belong to him. That's the first thing. If you don't know whose you are, you've got to nail that down first. That's step one. Step two is to take this word and bury it deep inside of you so that it has no choice but to come out in every aspect of your life. Now, does that mean you're not going to be scared or some, by some magical and mysterious wave of the hand or turn of the page? You're not going to be intimidated to share the word or to give that encouragement to a brother or a sister or a non-believer? Are we going to shy away? Unfortunately, a lot of times we do. I myself, I, I pray a dangerous prayer and I ask God to show me all the areas that I've, I've missed. It's a lot more than I care to admit. That's because we're not continuously dying to ourselves daily. Instead, we're just, okay, well, it's, Seven o'clock in the morning, I got to get up and go to work, get in my routine, work my day, come home, give the excuse of being tired. And guys, all he wants is just to spend that time with him. If you're tired, be tired with him. If you're happy, be happy with him. If you're in a trial, go through that trial with him. Makes it a lot shorter and a lot more rewarding. 
But he wants us to look into that perfect law, into his word. So that we don't be forgetful hearers, but we become doers. So what kind of perspective do you have right now? Is your perspective a worldly one? Or is it one of God? Where do you spend your time? Is it with God or is it with the things of the world? Do you let yourself get so busy that it drowns them out? Do you find yourself having to make time for them instead of including them through everything? It's hard. It's difficult. It's convicting. Are you in the middle of a trial now? Or are you on that hilltop? If you're on that hilltop, you probably have encouragement to give to someone who's down in that valley. As we're a whole family of believers here and all across this country, somebody's gone through what you've gone through. Somebody's got a word of wisdom. And all God wants us to do is talk to each other, to share, which is why fellowship is so important. That's why I love the fact that y'all don't run out of here right at the end. Everybody stays around and talks. You let each other know when there's something wrong, when there's a trial you're going through. Guys, we're meant to pray for each other, to lift each other up, to hold each other accountable. Right? So if you're in the middle of that trial, know it's for a purpose. It may just be simply for you to go through it so that you can help somebody down the road. It may be so that you can finally rely on God fully. He's trying to get your attention. How long is it going to take? And how many things do you have to go through before he does? Now, after he gets your attention, it doesn't mean the trials are going to go away. They're still going to come because the devil's afraid of you. He's going to throw as much stuff at you as he can to discourage you and distract you. Remember to stand fast. Trust on the wisdom that can only come from God and through clinging to him in the midst of a trial. Don't let temptation give birth to sin and death. Instead, let it be used for spiritual growth so that we may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just, again, thank you so much for just the blessings that you give us day in and day out, Lord, that we don't deserve. I thank you so much for your son and for just just the gift of life that he was able to give to us, Lord, despite the fact that we, we deserve that sin and death. God, I pray for each, each member of this congregation here, for Pastor Mike at home who's sick, Lord. I pray for quick recovery. And God, I just pray that you continue to go with us through this week and through the different trials that we're going through, Lord, and help us remember that you're in control, that you have a plan, and you have a purpose. And God, just continue to be with us. Put that hedge of protection around everybody here and those that couldn't make it, Lord, and even those to come. And I just continue to pray for your guidance and your, your grace and your love to just be poured out through this church and through the members in it. And God, we ask all this in your precious and holy son's name.